0: Hello and welcome to episode fifty-one of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host, Mark. And coming up on today's episode, it's going to be James Acaster, one of my favourite comedians in the business right now, an absolute hilarious guy. I've been lucky enough to see him live in the past. I've got his book. And also, only recently I watched his Netflix special, Repertoire, which is a four-part episode special, which is one of my favourite stand-up shows, and I advise you all to go out there and literally watch it as soon as possible, because it's awesome. This follows on really, really nicely from Ricky Tomlinson, who was on the show only last week, and I thought, let's get some more comedians, let's get some more people within comedy on, so that's what i am trying to do, and here I am now with James Acaster joining me on today's episode. A big thank you to Ricky Tomlinson for coming on the show last week. Everyone loved it. I love the feedback. I've seen so many tweets and Facebook comments commenting on how nice he was, how upbeat he was, how confident he is, how great his stories are. And he's someone that I do hope to get back on because I know this guy's got so, so many stories to tell and I just want to get him back on as soon as possible. A big thank you to everyone for last year. Hopefully you're listening now and it's January, so Happy New Year to you all. But 2018 was a busy year for Mark and me. I never expected to release 27 different episodes. I was putting together a collage the other day with all the pictures of the guests that have been on, and I had no idea. When you get caught up in it and you're editing and recording, it's strange you don't actually take note of how many episodes you've done. And then when I came to put it all together, I was actually shocked. 27 different episodes, alongside 24 episodes of Skip to the End, giving me a total of 51 episodes released last year. Now, considering there's only 52 weeks in the year, that gave me one week off. So what I probably should do is recharge the batteries, take some time out and rest. But I ain't going to do that because this year in 2019, I want to top it. I want to release more episodes, get more and more interviews conducted, and get them out for all of you great listeners. And that's what I'm going to do. And as I said, let's kick the year off with a big one. Here's my interview now with me and James A. Thanks, James, for joining me on the Mark and Me podcast. A pleasure. I wanted to start today by talking about when you were growing up. So I believe you're from Kettering, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I know the Weetabix factory is probably the highlight of your childhood. But mm-hmm. apart from that, what else did you used to get up to before you became a comedian? Uh, well, I was
1: I was in a load of bands before. So when I was growing up, I mainly wanted to... Actually, I, I was going to say I mainly wanted to be in bands, but that's not true. I, I wanted to do loads of creative things, and that's all, that's all I was interested in in school and stuff, was the the art classes. So actual art class, uh, painting and... I really liked drawing cartoons, and I was uh, playing the drums, and I liked uh, doing plays and drama and doing comedy plays but I wasn't good at any of the, I felt stupid acting serious and I would have to try and turn everything into a comedy, which my drama teachers, some of them liked that and some of them did not like that. I wanted me to try and challenge myself a bit more, but I, I couldn't do it. And I just, um, I think I stayed on the one year of sick form and decided it wasn't for me. So I, I didn't do the second year and I just, uh, formed a band with my friends. Um, Went to, there was this BTech music course in Northampton, um, so I went on that, but it was like, all you did on the course was form a band, it wasn't really anything else, and you didn't really get a proper qualification at the end of it, but it was just a really good place to go and uh, meet other kids who wanted to be musicians, and then I formed a band with my friend Graham uh and a bunch uh, me graham and our friends tom and simon uh were in a band for a while and then it was just me and graham for a bit in a, in a new band that was formed and that was pretty much and that's pretty much because i was at 22 then we stopped and uh i i decided to do stand-up not professionally uh as in like the goal wasn't to go professional the goal was just do stand so I didn't know what I wanted to do in my life, I had no qualifications and um, had a lot of free time, I was working part-time in the kitchen, I was only doing like 12 hours a week in the kitchen, for a lot of free time and uh, at that point, you know, it was easy to just like, living in Ketman just to kind of like, be on a kind of, just a loop of friends houses and like, go around and hanging out with people who like, you know, I really love and they're still my friends now, but we'd just be doing the same thing every night, watching the same films a lot of the time, like I repeat watching, uh, you know, the, the big Lebowski or whatever. And uh, I just needed to do something that was productive. Like, when, when I was in a band, I really liked the fact I could, you know, go on at the time, it was MySpace and book gigs, and then we'd drive somewhere. And even though, you know, we tried to Blackpool and play the four people and then drive all the way home, but even that, I felt like I was doing something, you know? Yeah. Um, and i didn't like feeling like i wasn't doing anything so starting stand-up was basically i just wanted to be doing something again and i didn't think it would be my job i didn't enjoy it for a while it was like something that it was really out of my comfort zone i felt like even though no one liked the band that was it i felt like i knew what i was doing and um i had a handle on it and i was doing what i wanted whereas like with comedy i had no idea why i was or wasn't funny one day to the next and uh it was quite a it just wasn't as fun a thing and it, t- it took a long time for me to eventually be like oh i want to do this as a job I a year and a half of doing the open mic circuit um and i was doing other things during that time i was like, trying to make short films with my friends and uh, even playing drums in a, in a band that i wasn't like in charge of. i was always like the one organizing bands and so i kind of was playing drums in a band that other people were doing and it was like okay cool all the you know all the responsibilities on them. I don't have to stress about organising everybody. And if that band gets somewhere, it gets somewhere. If it doesn't, then, um, you know, I won't be as invested in it and I won't have put all my time into it. So, yeah, for about a year and a half, I was just doing stand-up amongst other stuff because it was the only thing that I was in charge of solely on my own I wasn't having to work with other people on a short film or in a band or anything. It accelerated a lot quicker and I improved it a, um, a lot quicker and, you know, kind of knew... Uh, what I was doing um, quicker and then wanting to do it as a job. So w- once you get like half decent at something, you enjoy it more. And um, luckily, once I decided I wanted to do it as a job, uh, I, yeah, I just moved straight to London and within, I think it was nine months, yeah, nine months chose you long enough to be a tour support. I I got to quit my day job. I was working in a school as a classroom assistant with autistic children and I quit that. And then, went on tour with JC, and I've never had to do a, uh, I, I hate calling it a proper job because I don't think that's fair, I think it's patronising the people who have jobs that are on stand-up comedy, uh, but I didn't have to do a job like that again, I was just, I was just doing stand-up.
0: I love that you talked about the, um, the BTEC as well because that's what I did when I was growing up and it was exactly the mm. same, you got dumped in this room with loads of drummers, guitarists, bassists, all basically saying, I don't want to do textbook stuff and just play Nirvana songs and Pearl Jam songs to try and Mm. get a degree. Um, And everyone used to tell me, like, it's worth two A-levels. And you're like, oh, cool, but it was worth jack shit. (laughs) It's just a case of being able to play the guitar for two years and not have to write and do loads of research. Yeah,
1: that's what I wanted to do. You know, I I didn't want to do... I didn't want any uh qualifications really they were, they were no good to me like, at the time i was like well i, I want to be in a band um you know and i don't want to do anything that requires qualifications so why would i waste so much time getting qualifications when i'm not even going to use them so like at the time it was like i just want to it, it was basically college was just this big resource center where we could, there's loads of instruments there we could play whatever we wanted. There was access to a studio. We could use computers and record on MIDI and stuff like that and learn how to use Cubase and all these different things. So it was just a whole, like, we just used it. but like, We were actually busier outside of our lessons than we were in our lessons because we were trying to get access to everything and, and use all the equipment. So, like, yeah, for someone who just wanted to be in a band and push that forward, college was great. But I, I knew that I wasn't going to get any qualifications by the end. I mean, I, I didn't even... There was a point at the end we had to do all our um they weren't even called dissertations but whatever they were these like final pieces that we were handed in and i just didn't bother with them like (laughs) i i kind of just because i at the time i was like well i need to be booking loads of gigs for the band i need to be practicing with the band and i didn't see any point in writing these papers up um which would only mean that i did less work on the band i was in when the whole point of going and doing that course was to get in a band and push the band forward. So, you know, I didn't do very well on my grade at the end of it either because I, I, I just wanted to start focusing more on um, forwarding the band that I was in at the time. So, yeah, it was just it was just a good way of, like, you know, it was, it was just a little playground, really, to kind of, like, use instruments
0: and make contacts. So you then did get into the comedy um, element and you thought that's definitely something you could hopefully make a career out of instead of being in the band and drumming and hopefully, you know, touring to... Playing in front of four people as you said some nights but were you actually a fan of comedy when you were a kid? Were you getting the element of comedy from watching certain films or were you actually watching stand up routines or how was it introduced into your life?
1: Yeah I was watching both and like it was, uh, I was watching a lot of uh, it was mainly comedy films when I was a little kid Yeah, and then I think I discovered stand up when I was a teenager I watched a Lee Evans video and uh, like thought it was mind blowing and it was observational comedy I'd never seen observational comedy before so like seeing somebody tell you about your life and make jokes about what your life is like in a way that you didn't think everyone had these shared experiences um it was a really amazing yeah that was a really amazing experience the first time i saw lee evans and like um i guess now you know you can kind of get more pretentious about stand-up and talk about it more and be like oh you know it's all about shared experiences and people not feeling alone and uh, but like i think i think that is true and like what watching that uh, video for the first time and realizing that other people, you know, did the same silly little things that I did. Even just like you made an observation about, you know, when, when you are walking down the street and someone's walking the other way, and you try and get out of each other's way, and you both move in the same direction. I hadn't heard that before, so like, you know, it, it was mind blowing at the time. I thought it was so funny, um, and I think I, I think even the punchline for that was him saying that <laughs> at the end of doing that he realized he was looking at his own reflection in the shop window which now <laughs> would probably be at the time i didn't like that punchline at all because i was like that didn't happen and uh, like that it annoyed me more that that wasn't an observation you know, like, oh, well no one does that and I, I didn't really get jokes you know like silly jokes like that when i was a teenager i didn't i didn't like that um i think it maybe felt a little bit kind of like uh like old people would laugh at stuff like that like that silly jokes but like you know i liked observations and things but um yeah that was the first stuff i watched was like lee evans and then quite quickly after that going to uh it's a lot of stuff i was trying to watch as much stand-up as i could and um definitely while i was in the band i was watching things that were i was watching comics who weren't on television for the first time i was watching stuff like Josie long or will hodgson or um, Kitson or, and, and things like that, Paul Foot and people um, and really just getting into discovering comics who uh, I had to kind of like put the effort into to discover them and discovering that people did all these different types of humour and it was all still alive and well like at, the, at the time there weren't many stand-ups on TV actually, it was just the same names that you had 10 years ago, were still the main stand-ups on television at that point and it was like, the boom kind of happened while I was an open spot, I, I feel like my school year if you like of open spots we were the kind of like probably some of the last ones who did it just because we didn't really know what else we wanted to do and we didn't think it would be our job like it was we all felt like a bunch of waste and strays and we're just like you know we'd all failed at other stuff yeah you know, um you know people i made friends with early on were like nick helm and josh Whitaker, and like you know i felt a being in a band and, and nick had been doing trying to do plays and found it frustrating and working with other people and uh uh, Josh had like tried to be a writer and he hadn't really got anywhere with it and so we all just like had just got into stand up but we didn't think this would be our job. Um I didn't feel like anyone thought it would be their job, you know. And then like it really comics started doing arena gigs and stuff during that time and then suddenly it became like a viable like this is a career. And uh, the next I remember the next wave of stand ups who came into the open-white Circuit like they scared us because they seemed like businessmen. Like they were just walking the, the way the way that they were talking was like, oh, like they're like, yeah, I'm just basically going to get working for twenty, and then uh, I can use bits of that, you know, for like different TV shows that they're looking for. And we were like, oh, we we thought we were just like getting up on stage and experimenting you know? every um, night.
0: Yeah. So it was a bit, it's a bit weird. So, I mean, we take it for granted now, don't we? We can put on Netflix or Amazon and there's literally a whole archive of different stand-ups. Literally, it's probably the best time in the world to try and get your show out there and stuff. But back then, do you remember, were, you, were your parents taking you to a, a stand-up show? Can you remember the first time you went to see it live and it had that even bigger impact on you? Uh,
1: I think, well, I went to see like some little gigs. So every now and again in Kettering there was like some small gigs on and I'd go and see... Um, I think Laughing Horse put a gig on there. They're, they're usually, usually just a London promoter, but they had a short-lived Kettering gig, and um, I went to see that a couple of times, and there'd be, like, you know, comics I didn't know from the circuit on it. Um, I think the first comic that I went to see live, I'm trying to think if it was Lee Evans or if it was Ross Noble, but like, there was a period of time I'd started going to see stand-up. So I don't know. I remember going to see Lee Evans in the Nottingham Trent Arena, and uh, being... Well, being disappointed because, like, it just doesn't feel like you're at the gig in an arena. So, like, I just felt like I was really far away from him and all the usual stuff that people complain about with arena gigs, you know. And um
0: You're watching it on, like, a big screen.
1: Yeah, you're kind of watching the screen more. Or you're trying to look at him because you, you don't want to watch the screen. So you think, well, if I watch the screen, I might as well be at home. Yeah. So I'm going to try and watch him, but then you can't really see all the little stuff. And also, you don't feel... You, yeah, the area that you're sitting in, there's no atmosphere to it because you're not right there with him. We were like up at the side. So everyone in our area is pretty quiet. So you're kind of sitting amongst people who aren't really laughing. And um, so it doesn't feel like you're at a comedy show. Uh, but I went to see Ross Noble at the Leicester de Montfort Hall. That was one of my first uh, gigs that I went to. Uh, and um, he was incredible. Mean, the first half of that was like just the most, I think, still still the most I've laughed consistently throughout a show like it was it was an hour that first half and i just didn't stop laughing it hurt at times and uh i don't think i've really felt like that (laughs) um uh, since really watching a a comedy gig it was so so good
0: so it's a good starting point then to go into such a great comedian and laugh your ass off for a good hour
1: yeah well he was like he was like one of my favorite favorites you know especially like before i did stand up i kind of i really uh respected improv maybe more than anything at the time. I was like, improvised comedy is the hardest and all this. And, you know, whereas now I know that it's all as hard as each other. You know, like any genre of stand-up or type of stand-up, you know, to do it well is as hard as each other. and It's as hard to do good observation as it is to do good improv, to do good surreal comedy or good, you know, uh, ju- you know uh, one-liners, you know, whatever it is, it's really hard to, to, it's as hard to do it well. But um, at the time I was like, as a success with comedians who improvised um or at least made it feel improvised so like um yeah that was a really good gig to go to at first and then i went to see Josie long at the uh road menders in northampton and uh that was like quite a small gig i think it was like a second tour at the time so like you know outside of london and edinburgh you know when you stand up and you're, you're just, just doing your second edinburgh show you know people haven't really heard of you outside of um you know wherever you're gigging and uh, she was getting in london at the time and um so northampton it was like a small crowd of like people who were all like me they were all kind of you know in their early 20s and um you know listened to kind of indie music or whatever we were quite twee um and so it was like a real it's a really nice experience. I've been watching it and just thinking, like, this is amazing. that like, you can do anything you want to do with stand-up comedy. Like, she's talking about things that I just wouldn't think stand-ups could talk about. And even though it wasn't, I, When I'm not going to say that. I don't mean like you know things that don't appear funny. Just like I just didn't know you could talk about whatever you wanted. And that you could talk about just a guy at the gym who you're obsessed with and stuff like that. I didn't know that. Yeah, you, know, you could just tell a whole story about going to Australia and going to a bread factory. Like I, I kind of at the time yeah I thought the stand up had to be observational or, or you had to be like in the room in the moment improvising I didn't know you could just like tell some stories and it could be you know whatever you wanted it to be, and so that was a real kind of like yeah quite a, it really shifted how I thought about stand up and what was really funny as well is I remember when I supported Josie years later, I mentioned that gig to her she was like, oh, I remember that gig it was one of the hardest ones of the tour it was so hard, and like it really funny because that's how we feel the stand up so so much of the time. We, we won't be enjoying our shows or whatever, we think the audience don't like it, and you don't know that there's, you know, for her, there was someone in the audience who was going like, oh, I think I want, you know, I want to do stand-up now, and this has really changed how I view stand-up comedy, yeah. and then she was probably going home in the car being like, oh, that was a real, real washout, that girl, that's that a real shame, <laughs> whereas, like, you know, she actually had a big
0: impact on someone without knowing it. So obviously that kick-started your career. You were going off, you were doing um, Edinburgh, you were doing all the shows, all the festivals. You were working really hard. I was looking at all your previous tour dates on your website and you then suddenly had this big jump where I'm sure your family and your friends were supporting you but you were on Mock the Week, Have I Got News for You. To be on the inside of that, was it a a real kind of click and you were suddenly there or was it? did it feel like a long road to get to that?
1: So I, I think it gradually... A little bit further
0: each year yeah. and to the outside it seems like suddenly i was on these things but
1: like you know there was but like, like the year before that i was i was doing a lot of like smaller panel shows on like e4 and bbc3 and stuff so i swept the small stuff or virtually famous and so i was doing a lot more of those kind of shows and then the year before that i was like starting to do those shows and so it's like you know for me it was like it's this gradual climb and you know the year that i did mock the week for the first time um yeah it was just like oh okay so I've now i've got the. that's like the next step from doing you know lesser known panel shows is doing a panel show that everyone knows but um to the audience at home it seems like oh suddenly he's on this and uh and they don't, yeah, because they don't watch those other TV shows. They're not as familiar with them. And also, the people who watch those other shows—if they watch, like, you know, Virtually Famous or um, uh, sort of small stuff—they probably don't watch Mot the Week. Yeah. Because, but um, it's a different audience. It's a completely different crowd. So, to one crowd, you're suddenly on this thing. Um, but no, it was—it was a. I—I I don't feel like it's ever moved. It's never felt to me, really like oh it suddenly jumped and I'm suddenly someone, maybe maybe this year it kind of feels a little bit like that but like it's still, um, it's a lot of things that were kind of bubbling away anyway and they've just all been kind of launched in the same year but um, yeah normally it it never feels like more than I can take on, it's like okay yeah this was the next logical step anyway so yeah.
0: So then when Netflix um, obviously gave you the show of Repertoire, um, was that the point where you kind of Again, you're on the inside, so it must be difficult. But is that the point where you're getting recognised in the street a lot more, and your family were like, "Oh, right, okay, you're on this big platform"? It's for for people that aren't involved in the comedy circuit. That must have been a huge, huge step for you.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it was. Um, I think the thing about it was that it's it's it was a step that I wanted to take as well. I wanted people to, to see my stand up shows because I knew that you know that's what I put the most amount of work into, and so it's you know. Where I feel like um, I was gonna say well, I feel like I'm at my best, but like where I feel like it's what I want people to see. It's it's the it's the version uh, of my stand up and my comedy that I work the, most, the hardest on, and I, I I feel like represents you know me as a stand up as a comedian and what I, want, what I want to be doing. So I I really wanted to get them out there, and it wasn't like Netflix approached us and asked us you know do you want to do some specials and say like, yo last year was me making those specials happen uh regardless yeah and then netflix got on board right at the last minute um and you know it was a lot of hard work my uh you know obviously i was working hard and agents were working hard the production company you know we were all kind of um working together and sometimes not working together sometimes it was it was a bit difficult um but like uh yeah, you know, I felt like someone had to really kind of like, uh, put my foot down or whatever and be like, no, we are going to, we are moving forward on this. Cause like, understandably for some people, you know, moving forward on a project where no one's agreed to buy it off of us. So we're going to potentially lose money. Isn't a good business move. And for me, it was all just a creative move and I was going to put money into it as well and stuff like that. I wasn't putting as much into it as my agents were, um, but like I was gonna have to put some of my own money into it, and you know we had to film. We had to figure out how to film four shows as cheaply as possible. So you know we were gonna do it in two days and film all four all four shows in one day, and then all four shows again the next day for safety. And it was like that was the cheapest way of doing it and doing it with the same crew. Um, so it's just one setup and all this. So we had to really figure out a way of keeping the cost down because at the time it was like, well, no one wants to buy it. BBC didn't want it uh, channel, you know, none of the channels in the UK wanted it at all. They all turned it down. Um, and, uh, we've been, we've gone to America, me and my agent, and we've pitched it to loads of different online platforms. And they'd all said no. Uh, and Netflix were the only ones who were like, oh yeah, it sounds like interesting. also like we was kind of, we were giving them a pretty good deal. I know people like some comics have tweeted about how much they got paid for their Netflix specials. And it's a lot of money. Um, and we were just like, "Here's how much we're spending on the shows," and really, we we just wanted to cover the the costs and to be able to pay everyone who worked on it, you know, a, a decent enough wage. So like, I didn't get much at all. Like, for, I don't know, some people always think like, "Oh, you did four Netflix specials; you must be rolling in it now." And that's absolutely not the case. And like, um, it was just we, I wanted it to go out there, and I wanted it. Netflix was the dream platform for it. And for them to agree to put it out and, um, you know, but a big part of that was, like, you know, us saying, this is the de- Yeah, it's a, uh, quite a good deal for them. Yeah. Not gonna, you know, and, and so they're like, yeah, it's a no-brainer. Like, if he, if he pulls it off, then we look good. If he doesn't, we haven't paid much money for it, so it doesn't matter. And so, like, that, then they gave us complete creative control and freedom over it. they didn't make us do anything we didn't want to do. Um, and we got to put exactly what we wanted uh, out there on netflix and i think that's definitely why um it has had that effect you know it has had a bit of a jump for me because like anyone who likes it genuinely likes what i do because yeah. that's what those shows are those shows are just like here's exactly what i do stand-up wise and i filmed it in the way i want to film it and i think the way we filmed it gets across you know, the tone of the show's and so now the people who are coming to see my shows are uh, are much more on board from the get-go because they know that they like it they know what kind of stand-up i do and um yeah you know I, I do get sometimes like you know recognized a bit more but it is by you know pretty nice people you know they're not they're not rude or demanding or you know yobbish because they, they, they if they if they like those shows They tend not to be, you know, really loud, laddie types. Yeah. So, so yeah, yeah, it definitely has had a jump. But, again, like, not a jump, like, it's not been like this year with, like, with uh, Hannah Gadsby, with Nanette. That's been, like, life-changing for her. And, like, you know, that was, like, that completely transformed her. And, like, you know, she's, like, properly famous now. And I'd say, like, for me, again, it's been that manageable amount of, like, you know, moving forwards and it's been maybe a more significant step than previous ones but it's still not like it's not like oh now i can't go anywhere or you know now there's loads of pressure on me for what you're gonna do next it's like it they did you know uh as well as or better than i could have hoped but not like not in a way that now is like oh my my whole life's different uh, it's, it's it's not my life's not different
0: you're not going to be on the uh, ricky gervais money anytime soon
1: no, no, well, maybe, 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 I'll, uh, <laughs> maybe I'll play hardball next time. No,
0: no I, I don't think I am going to be on The Ritchie Base, maybe. So the fact that they gave you, that was my next question about the creative control, I was always worried that it could be like a watered-down or a bit more of a, a slightly PG version of your stand-up, so then when you go and watch you live, you think, oh my God, he's really offensive, I'm really shocked by this, this wasn't on Netflix. So the fact that they let you put it out how you wanted, you must be so proud of that.
1: Uh, yeah, I think for my stuff that's not the concern uh i think for my stuff the concern would be that they would try and make it yeah i know what you mean like more um uh just what people are used to with yeah standards. so like yeah. for example like with my one uh you know people could have been like we want you to film it at the apollo uh because that's where everyone films their stand-up shows and we want it to be filmed with these cameras and to look like this so it's sparkly and it's glittery and we want the shows to be this long so you need to edit this much out of it because if you're doing four shows we don't want them all to be 50 minutes so we'd rather they're all 40 minutes so cut 10 minutes out of each one and uh, that joke's a bit weird can we cut out the weird bits and make it a bit more Yeah. I've had that before when I've done like TV shows I've done stand-up on TV and you do an entire routine and then they cut out all the weird bits and they keep in the observational stuff and then you just look like a regular observational stand-up and not someone who's like got a more skewed perspective of things so yeah that can happen and and like you know Netflix would give notes we'd send them the the edits they'd give notes and then we would either take the notes or ignore them and like you know some of their notes to begin with were saying like oh the camera goes out of focus here and there's a light flare here and the mic stands in front of the camera there and uh, we, we were like oh yeah we kind of want to keep those things in we feel like it you know we want to feel more live and a bit more raw and they went okay well ignore that that's fine and and that was it that was the whole they didn't try and convince us otherwise they just went okay if you want to keep those in keep those in and i think a lot of other places would have been like no we you know yeah um, they
0: want it polished don't they
1: yeah yeah and i i feel like there's you know for ages people were scratching their heads being like how do we uh you know make stand up on tv feel like it does in the room and i think uh so much of the time it's just like you know do, for one, do a slower edit. Like, you don't need to change camera shots every five seconds so that it feels like a, a, a blockbuster movie. Like, when you're seeing stand-up live, you're sitting in an audience and you're watching one take, basically, for ages. So do as long a takes as possible. Um, you know, don't don't turn the laughs up or plug laughs in. If something doesn't get a laugh or doesn't get a big laugh, fine. Like, the, one of the main things that get tweeted at me by anyone watching my show in subtitles it's going, oh, they're really harsh on you with the subtitles, it always says scattered laughter. Every time there's a laugh, it says scattered laughter and not laughter. And it's because, yeah, that was like, you know, that was the vibe a lot of the time and we we didn't want to cheat and change it. You know, because sitting at home, if you're watching a joke that gets more than it should, it throws you off and it feels weird and you maybe don't like that joke as much. Whereas if the joke gets, you know, what it deserves in the room you are actually in more of a position at home watching it to be like, actually, I really like that joke, and, or, or I think it should have got more. Or, yeah it means, And you don't really notice how big a laugh it got. I you need know? yeah. the people watching it in subtitles notice, because they're like, oh, it's saying scattered laughter. And they <laughs> are, actually, you know, it, is, it is quite scattered rather than everyone at once. But, um, yeah, we just wanted to make it feel like a proper gig. And for that, you have to be more, um, I guess, exposed with it all, and not like, you know... The, te- the temptation with a stand-up show when you film it is to make yourself look like an absolute rock star and like you're a legend and you're tearing it up. And uh, that's not, to me, that's not what stand-up is. So, like, it's, it's showing them more like, you know, this is what I do, you know, it's like like a band playing an album or whatever. Yeah. So, like, here are the songs and uh, you decide if you like them or not. It's subjective.
0: I also like the genuine feel then when you do get that moment that is your show highlight where everyone is wetting themselves or laughing out loud it then those dynamics of the jokes that don't quite pay off as much and then when it, the reward then is so much more rewarding when you finally get a genuine not a voiceover or a, a fake laugh to put in i think it's more of a payoff for you surely yeah
1: i think so And well, just also for the the audience watching at home or whatever, you know, so, but what's what's interesting is that you know because I obviously get a lot of tweets that like are about the shows and stuff. And um, people's favourite jokes aren't necessarily the ones that are getting the biggest laughs. You know, yeah. a lot of the ones that people quote to me on Twitter and whatever or come up to me after shows and quote to me, they're not the ones that ripped it in the room when we filmed it. You know, they're just ones that resonate with people when they watch it at home. I think that's a thing as well. Is that yeah, it is great that there are some jokes that are getting a lot you know and obviously a big part of things is that like we, we film them all one two three four in a row in front of essentially the same audience like half of the audience changed as the day progressed but half of the audience were the same all day and so the fourth show was as easier than the first show yeah they're more warmed up and they're more into it and um so like yeah it was always like uh it was always going to be like that in the room but when you're watching it at home you know it's, it's completely different for you so um we just wanted to yeah like you kind of you're playing to the audience in the room but you're also you're mainly playing to the audience at home as well when you're filming it you're thinking like just just do the best performance of this that you possibly can and it doesn't matter how they're responding in the room because like they won't they won't notice and and i was really glad that that we kept that in mind and um you know i'd spent a year touring all four shows again so i've been relearning them all I changed the first one a lot. The first one was like I originally did it in 2014, and it was not as good anymore. It just wasn't as good as the later ones that I'd written, and so I completely rewrote it and brought it up to speed, so I, it felt as strong as the others. And um, yeah, what well, I mean that that's kind of I think like, yeah, when looking back at making them all like as, as happy as I am about the response to it and all that kind of thing. I think just being quite proud about how we all went about it and that I, I wasn't lazy with it. We gave p- people the best thing we possibly could uh, with that. It's like, uh, it, it just, that makes me feel more nostalgic and um, and proud of it, I guess.
0: So then after the success of this, you then decided to put pen to paper and do a book, uh, Classic Scrapes. Oh, that yeah. was
1: before. Yeah, yeah, but, but I, it's confusing because it's been released on paperback this year, so it seems like it's been released after but yeah the hardback came out um oh that was uh 2017 in the summer
0: how was it writing a book because obviously you stand up on stage with your used to when you were drumming you do it with your comedy but that's very more intimate that's just you and your own thoughts writing mm. uh what made you want to do this at that point of your career well
1: i didn't think i wanted to do it and then i had a meeting with uh some publishers and i'm i was going to the meeting and i was just thinking i'm wasting these people's time i have no ideas for books um i've got nothing to suggest to them and like yeah like i feel bad that i'm going to this meeting and that they're taking the time to meet me and the guy was called richard roper he uh, works for headline and uh he uh just such a, a brilliant uh just person in general and also like a publisher and he, he just he basically had the idea for the book because he, he listens to Josh Widdicombe's podcast which I was a regular guest on when it was on XFM and yeah. I would always tell a true story from my life every week because when I started out in stand-up I just did true stories yeah and um they kind of you know they were always they never worked all the time I guess that's a combination of fact that but I wasn't good at stand-up yet I just started doing stand-up but um when I stopped doing true stories in stand-up, that's when I started getting better and my writing improved because I had to be more imaginative and all that. Um, but then I had all these true stories that I'd done live that I had nothing, nowhere for them to go. And, uh, and so Josh was just like, why don't you come on the podcast, you can do all these stories. But they made way more sense on the radio because me sitting down with my friends and chatting about stories. So, you know, people also you get interrogated about the details so like you're clearly telling the truth and people aren't like in the comedy audience sitting there going oh, i think he's making this up you know so like that got like a little kind of cult following uh for that segment on, on the show and um uh richard roper listened to that section really liked it and he just said you know why don't you just do those stories in a book and i was like of course That's like of course like that's such an easy thing yeah. to do because I've, to- I've told them all you know, they're all things that actually happened to me. I've told them to friends and family loads, and then I've done them as stand-up loads, and I've done them on the radio loads. And so, like I, was, like, I know them all back to front, and so I can just sit down and write them. So it's actually quite easy to sit down and write, especially the first draft, as just like, okay, here's all the stories I'm going to write up, and I just sit down and write all the stories up, and then I put them in chronological order, uh, and then, you know, you'd write... Your next draft would be in chronological order, so you'd kind of be like, "Oh yeah, because that kind of refers back to that story," you know? and it becomes like a accidental kind of autobiography when you're like, "Oh yeah, this does something explains a lot more about you." You don't, you don't realize that the stories kind of explain a lot about why you are the way you are and uh, why you did certain things, and you know that one story, you know, you can go, "Oh, I actually only did that because." that other thing happened, you know, and, and, and i remember stories as I was going along as well that I hadn't even told on the radio. So, like, it was a really fun experience writing it, and, like, um, I mean, there was a point where I was touring the Netflix shows and relearning all of those, and, like, I, I would be in a different town or whatever for three nights in a row. I'd do, like, one show night, on the final night, I'd do two shows, and, um, I'd been like you know Peterborough for three days or whatever, and in the daytime I was writing the book and um also it was quite a successful year last year i but quite personally I didn't have a very good year last year uh, despite like you know those exciting things happening career wise my personal life was kind of like uh, a little bit uh, shaky, and so like it was this thing about like, I'd being somewhere like Peterborough Peterborough was the worst it got where i did like they didn't like any of the shows that I performed for them on any of the nights. And in the daytime, I was writing this book, which is essentially about all the times I've messed up in my life. Like every true story is about me making mistakes, things going wrong for me. Yeah. And so in the daytime, I'd be in a tiny hotel room, writing up about all my failures, and then in the evening, I'd go and perform a show that, at that point, I wanted to film, but had no one who wanted to buy it to an audience who didn't find it funny. And uh, yeah, kind of like at the time, both the book and the. Um, uh, you know, live shows seem to be lost causes that were going to be, like, not going very well, so, like, it's it's nice now kind of, like, that, you know, both of them have um, done better than I
0: thought they would, you know. So that sounds kind of. it must be quite a hard one, because stuff outside was bad, stuff at home, and your life was bad. What, what did you do to get back on that road to recovery? Were you just sticking at it? Were you trying to write new material? Were you changing the stuff that that crowd didn't like, or was it just a a time that you think just nothing would work, so you just needed to kind of just bear with it or did you try and change everything? Uh,
1: it depends what you mean by road to recovery. Like um like in my personal life I was like uh, going to therapy and going and doing as much exercise as I could yeah. and um stuff like that. And just trying to get back on track that way. Um and then just career wise, I kinda just did what i've always done and got my head down and been like okay like here's the problems with the shows like so especially with that first show at the four i was like here's all the problem is this like being honest with yourself because i think when i was an open spot um to begin with i'd always blame the audience and be like well they you know they get why it was funny and they're stupid or whatever and actually as soon as i started being like honest with myself about that wasn't funny because you didn't deliver it very well or the the, the language isn't good enough like they don't know what you're talking about you need to use better words and things like that so like i always do that now so i was kind of like with my stand-up that year i was able to go okay this first show here's all here's what you want it to be so that's important as well yeah going what i want this show to be is this and like especially with the first part of that show the first 15 minutes of that show I'm, i'm kneeling down and then i stand up at the end of the 15 minutes and i was like when you stand up, that has to get an applause and it has to deserve the applause as well and not just be, you can't trick them and force it. And everything leading up to that needs to be funny and you you need to really tighten up because it's not good enough and at the minute you're going to start these four shows on a dance script and people are going to switch off the first one after 15 minutes and then they won't watch the other three. So like, it was just being honest with myself about what I wanted that show to be and why it wasn't That So that was what I did with the live shows was gonna be quite ruthless about, here's why it's not good enough and here's why it's not what you want it to be, yeah. And then with the book, it was just like, again, it was kind of the same thing. It was like, you want it to, you know, like, you want it to come across like an easy read. I was like, don't, you know, don't try and show off with like, big words that you know or anything. Like, write, write how you talk um and uh yeah just cut out bits that seem to drag it down for you and so yeah it was those things are quite good to focus on i guess when you're not doing well you know in your personal life because you can just sit down and go okay i know how to do this i know that you know what i need to be doing with these stories and i I know that you know it's like even not funny enough yet or this bit slows it down to take this bit out um you know I like this story but it doesn't really need to be in there and uh, it kind of takes away from the whole book so I'll, I'll edit that bit out but that means I need to make other things longer. So it, it was like I was quite clear minded on how I needed to do and, and the book was like written pretty quickly you know I'm writing a new one at the minute and it's going to take a lot longer but like that one um, I think within a year yeah I had a meeting in 2016 in Edinburgh about writing a book and then 2017 Edinburgh we, we were launching the book in Edinburgh, so like, it was a year of like writing
0: it. You know when you come to write new material, do you have a process of like, is there a good friend of yours, or a group of people, or your family that you try it out on first, or do you go on the road and try it, and incorporate it into your set to then see what works, or how how does it work? it's like, I always look at it as like a band trying to write a new album, and they play the new songs live, the crowd don't really like it because they're ready for the hits they've heard, so when it's a a comedian doing it, how do you incorporate it and kind of break those new stuff into into your set?
1: There's loads of uh, new material nights, um, especially in London where I live. So, like, there's, like, so many nights that I just build as comics trying out new material. Yeah. So I'll go there and do, like, you know, 10 minutes, whatever. But I don't really – I don't write stuff down. So I don't sit down and write at home, and I don't try stuff out on friends or family or anyone. I just go to a gig with some, like, subjects that I feel like I want to talk about. Yeah. And I just start talking. So now I'm in a fortunate position where I can – a small venue in London, like a 50 seat or whatever, and do an hour myself, on yeah. new material, and just have people show up, and um, it's just always embracing and accepting the fact that you're going to fail before you get a good show. So, like, you know, I've had, within the last year of writing a new show, I've had, you know, complete, pretty uncomfortable deaths in front of audiences that have gone really badly, because... You know, I've just, I've just kind of written down, here's things I want to talk about, and I've, I've thought, like, okay, I think I want to talk about it like this, but I'm not sure, and it's all just in my head. I'm just trying it out and put kind of thinking out loud in front of them. And sometimes you just don't find the funny bits in them. But, um, so that's what I do. I, I just kind of try it out in front of an audience, and then if something works, i either remember it or I'll write down in my phone, look like in the notes section, you know. Yeah. Here's how you phrase that bit or whatever. And... Uh, but yeah, mainly I just do it live, and um, I never really have a very clear vision in my head when I start out about what I want it to be um, and what I want the show to be. And it's really I just let that present itself. Like the more I do new stuff, and the more I do a new show uh, in work in progress, is it kind of like so? Like this new one I'm doing now is all like true stories and personal stuff, which is a which is not what I you know did. As stand-up before yeah um it was when i started out in stand-up and i think that's why i'm doing these now is because like i i did those true stories when i was an open spot and then i did you know all my solo shows and all my stuff for like the last however long uh 10 years i guess has been like um made up and fit, uh fictitious and then um i did the book tour for the the classics paper book and so it was all those true stories again i just really enjoyed telling true stories on stage and i thought uh you know just do some true stories for a bit and if you don't want to do it in a show then fine you don't have to and you know just see how it feels and so like that was all i had going in was like a vague thing of like well i'll just try some true stories now but i never really had a very clear idea of what i wanted to be And it the more i did the the show the more i was like okay this is what it is and eventually you go okay now i know what i want it to be and then i can do that ruthless thing i was talking about earlier and be like okay you want it to be this so you need to change this 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 and this. And then, and then you get a lot more um regimented with it but yeah when it's new material at the start it's very very loose
0: it's uh it must be a very busy time for you at the moment because obviously this year you're on taskmaster um you've been doing your sweet home ketaringa which is your own little project. Um, you just told me then you're starting work on another book, you're touring, and you're still drumming and recording music. So do you ever get any spare time? <laughs> Not as much as so I'd like, but then I had to kind of
1: like, I had to, like, to enforce that. Yeah. I'm self-employed. So when we, I think when you're self-employed, you just kind of, you feel like you've got to say yes to everything and you fill your diary with too much stuff. And uh, for me, it's like, As much as I like doing gigs, I've got to say no to, you know, gigs that aren't my solo shows. You know, I've got to kind of try and restrict it now to kind of like doing work-in-progress shows that are just me and then doing tour shows but not going around just doing every gig available to me because then I don't get a night off and then I wear myself down and I get ill and it's just all sorts. So, yeah, and it's also like, you know, with those other projects, it's kind of knowing how much to take on at one time. So, like, yeah, right now, you know, I'm writing this book and I'm uh getting ready to tour this new show so I'm like still doing work in progress shows of, you know, versions of that and knocking that in a shape. But those are the two things I'm doing. And then outside of that, you know, I'm not doing uh yeah, you know, that's we Home catching it was quite a while ago, but like, um I sometimes do stuff with the same people. Yeah. I mean the people who filmed that are the people who saw my Netflix shows and uh, you know, I still do stuff with them every now and again and um me and Ed Gamble have like, done a podcast recently that's like going to come out um, I'm actually not sure when we're launching it I should know that so I can say it on things like this but um so we have recorded that. So there are little things like that but I'm still kind of like little things that I can do that aren't but they're, they're not you don't have to prep for them you know no. the podcast I don't have to rehearse for it I don't have to put, you sit down and write it um, Taskmaster is the same really. there's no prep involved you just turn up and you just do it Yeah. so projects like that that are kind of improvised is um kind of fine um but yeah in terms of like proper projects i have to sit down and work on you know like you said about drumming and music like you know the thing that i'm doing with that in a minute i just do it when i can fit it in yeah and it's just me and me and my friend graham again who i mentioned earlier um but like you know we did a thing at the start of this year with that and uh it's still not finished yet and we'll we'll do another load of recording when we can fit it in and when we're both available. But it's not like I've got to do everything at once and I've got to do Everything's got to be running, you know, in parallel with each other. Like, it's definitely not like that. I've got, um, I'm just kind of getting better now at being like, okay, yeah, this book is a big undertaking. So, you know, right now that's my main focus. And then there are other projects that are like on hold that I'm like, okay, I'll, you know, I'll start writing that once the book is up on its feet. And I, I know I can, you know, put attention elsewhere.
0: Is there anything that you want to do that you haven't yet? Because at the start of this interview you are telling me about making short films and stuff when you were growing up. You sound very creative. You're a film fan. Is there something you'd love to do in being the guy behind the camera instead of front of it for a bit? Or is there something that on, is on your list that you want to tick off that you've never achieved yet? Well, I
1: think that um, there are things that I'd like to do, but um, it's, it's weirdly... It's, it's like... I don't want to, I wouldn't say, oh, I, I want to make a film, or I want to make a sitcom, or whatever. I think it's like, if I get an idea that I really want to do, in that department, then i want to do that. You know, it's so like, years ago, I think it's two years ago, um, I did a sitcom pilot. Uh, it was a sitcom that I'd written, um, about jury, jury service. And I really wanted to do that idea. Um, and that really appealed to me. Um, and it, didn't get picked up. It didn't go to series. Um, and then people are like, "Right, what's your next sitcom idea?" And you're like, "I don't really have <laughs> no have many because like I wanted to do that. Like it's not like stand up where I'm like I really want to do stand up. So I will just do a stand up show, and then I want to do another stand up show, and I naturally think like that. That's what I want to do, and that's like really fulfilling to me. And with sitcoms, it was like I wanted to do that sitcom." but I don't just want to do a sitcom for the sake of it, just so I can say oh, I did a sitcom and tick and, you know, like, yeah. that's a, whatever. So, like, it's like, no, so I've got an idea for a film at the minute that i really love to do, and, um, you know, I'll probably write that after I've written the book, and we'll see if it goes anywhere. Uh, it probably won't, but, like, I think my kind of um, rule with all these things is that if it's something that I want to do, then I'll enjoy working on it. Yeah. I think that's, that's the lesson that I've learned from being in the band originally years ago is that I really wanted to do that and I really enjoyed it and then when it um, didn't work out and you can even say failed because it's not even that strong a word but when it, when it, when it failed to do what we wanted to do but it didn't actually feel that bad because um, I'd enjoyed being in the band and I was really proud of what we'd done and so... It didn't feel like failure at the end. You're like, oh no, we've we've done what we wanted to do. But I've really felt like a failure at other times in my life when I've kind of um, pursued something that I wasn't. My heart wasn't really in it, and I was really just doing it to try and get, you know, whatever it was—a radio series or a TV show or something like that—and. And it wasn't really something I was that passionate about and then you get turned down at the end of that and then you do feel like a failure because you like well that was a waste of time I didn't even want to do that and I've spent all that time just trying to really just become more successful or more famous and actually yes, that's there's, there's nothing in that for me what why 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 did I chase that for a while there so like um yeah I think anytime there's a project that I I'm really lucky to get a um I'm privileged to work in a job where um, I can do anything. Like, you know, stand-ups can just say, oh, I'd like to write a film, or I'd like to present something, or, you know, I'd like to write a book, or whatever it is. People kind of let stand-ups have a jab at all of that. And so I'm really lucky that I can kind of turn to my agent to be like, oh, I'd like to pursue this at the minute, and can we look into doing that? And so any time there is something that, yeah, kind of I like come up with an idea like that, like, then yeah, that'll be the thing that I want to do next and work on next. Um, but then, yeah, it's not necessarily, I haven't got a list of goals. No. It's not list, and it never was with this. I think with, when I was in a band, the one thing that I do regret is that I planned out my whole life. And it was like, I want to, you know, well, was a headline Glastonbury. And I want yeah. to have an album that makes the you know top 100 albums of all time and be a classic and all this like, you know, <laughs> yeah. really, really big goals that um and while i you know while i don't regret fully living my life like that i think it's good to kind of like have these big dreams when you're you know late teens early 20s and to just do something artistically it's uncompromising and all that kind of stuff um i think that it does stop you from enjoying what you're doing at the time as much and um, with stand-up, as I said, when I went into it, I had no, I didn't think it was going to be my job, I didn't think it was going to work out, so I just didn't have a plan. And I still feel like that. I still feel like there's no, if someone asks me, you know, where do you see yourself in five years' time, I've never known. And um, I always, like, know, you know, maybe a year ahead, but that's because I'm working on stuff now. <laughs> so, you know, I'm like, yeah, oh, next year a book will come out, you know, and next year I'll do a tour. So in the minute, that's like, you know, Those are the goals. I'm I'm doing those things. I want to do those as well as possible. Um, And I'd like to be able to film this new show and put it out again. And if Netflix wanted it, that would be the dream. I'd love to have another thing on Netflix because I really enjoyed that process. Um, But in terms of things that, you know, I haven't achieved yet and haven't done, yeah, I don't, like, you know, if I don't ever get to make a film or a sitcom or, I don't know, whatever it is, Uh, or, you know, have my own TV show or whatever, I'm kind of alright. Yeah. You know, it's it's just like, you know, you're always a bit disappointed if, like, something you really wanted to get off the ground doesn't, doesn't get off the ground. But, again, like that sitcom, you know, I really loved that pilot. I was so proud of it. I loved working on it with everybody. And it was, you know, disappointing when it got turned down, but I definitely didn't feel like I felt... Other projects that my heart wasn't in,
0: you know. Yeah. I was Just
1: like okay, you know that I I know that I'm proud of that, and I know that I think it was good, and uh, and that's all you can really ask ask of it. So yeah, I, I yeah I don't hmm, as much as I like I I, I yeah, I'd say that I would love to do a sitcom that I'm really proud of. I'd love to do a TV show I'm really proud of. But I'd love to do a film that I'm really proud of. Yeah. but Um, you know. At the same time, if I don't do any of those things... You're fine. I've already I've, I've achieved more than I thought I could achieve with this. And I'm in a position where... I think if you're able to do stand-up shows and no one is telling you what to do in them, and you're able to focus on improving as well as a stand-up and trying to push that forward, that's a... I really enjoy that. And it's a real joy. So, like, um you know, even though sometimes I feel like quitting stand-up and sometimes I kind of, like feel quite, like I'm shit, or you know, like, um, I, I can't handle it, sometimes I'm just like, oh, I'm, I'm not built for this actually, or whatever, but like I always do come back round to being like, no this is like a really great um, medium to be able to work in as a creative person, because you just get to do whatever you want, and um, and push forward with your own uh, artistic voice, I guess.
0: My final question for you today is, in the world right now, there's a lot of people wanting to be comedians because it's so popular, you know, like I said, you can turn on Netflix now and it's not one special, there's there's a whole section of, you know, stand-up now, which is great, it's accessible. What advice do you give to those people like you that were growing up that, you know, are trying to enter a world now of being a stand-up comedian? Well,
1: uh, I don't know, because like, you know, when I did it, I, yeah, there was no kind of, I didn't have those kind of goals. I, I guess... Actually, no, I guess the only advice is that you just focus on your actual stand-up, you know? Like, I think any other advice that is like, oh, you know, this is what people are looking for, or uh, if you want to get a special, here's what you do. Like, if you're entering the world of stand-up, or if you're in any position, I think at any point in your life as a stand-up comedian or your career as a stand-up comedian, whatever it is, the only thing you need to be focusing on is the quality of your stand-up comedy and improving and and um, doing what you want to do with it because, like, everything else follows after that. And it's as soon as you get distracted with other people's success, other people's careers, um, what other people uh, think of your stand-up or, you know, you're, you're not getting this, that, and the other, you know, you, you want to be doing this, you're not doing that. That's when it all kind of, like, falls by the wayside, and, you know, if you get obsessed with, I don't know, reviews yeah. or awards or whatever, like, that's... It all falls apart, and um, all I've felt like I've done from the start, really, I've obviously not always succeeded in this, and you have to kind of, like, you know, slap yourself around a bit and go stop focusing on stuff that it doesn't matter. But, like, the main thing I've done... And all I did was an open spot, because I didn't think it was going to be my job. Yeah. And there wasn't any ambition with it. So all I was doing was focusing on the stand-up being better, because that's all I was doing. I was going to gigs and doing stand-up. And so um, the only reason for doing it was to get better as a stand-up comedian. And and then, yeah, that's all I can continue to do. So I just say, be honest with yourself about how good your stand-up actually is. You know... And be your own harshest critic, um, and then just you know, get under the hood and uh, fix fix the problems with it. You know, and focus on getting better. And the better you get at it, the more you'll enjoy it. And the more, you know, the more you enjoy it, and the better you are at it, the more everyone else will be like, oh, we want to book that person for, you know, whatever it is, our gigs, our radio, TV, whatever they're doing. You know, they'll invite you to go on it. And if they don't invite you to go on stuff like that, that's out of your control. So just, just leave this to don't, you know, sit there stewing going, why am I not getting that stuff? Because, you know, that's that's a killer. And it's easier said than done. We all do it at some point. But, like, yeah, just just focus on the actual stand-up. That's why you got into it in the first place. Yeah. Kind of hope. If, you, if, if you're getting into it to be famous, or you're getting into it because you want to, you know just be a success or whatever it is then um I have no advice for you I I, I don't know like but um if you're getting into it because you've watched stand-up comedy and you love it and you want to be that person on stage then just remember that and just keep on doing stand-up because you enjoy it and keep on improving and being as good at stand-up as you can and make it worthwhile for the audience who are sitting there having to watch it you know yeah um but that's it really just there's no real secrets just no just do it for the right reasons and focus on stand-up.
0: And enjoy it.
1: Yeah, and sometimes you won't, you know. Sometimes you won't enjoy it, and that's okay. And don't make yourself feel bad about that. I've had loads of times I'm not enjoying it, and I've not been enjoying it on stage, and I've talked about how I'm not enjoying it. Or I've gone home and been like, I don't know what I'm doing in my life, why am I doing this? And you know, and it seems seems bad. But that's that's every job, you know. So whatever job you're in, you're going to think at some point, actually maybe this isn't for me, maybe I shouldn't be doing this, maybe I'm not careful, maybe I'm at it, whatever it is, and it'll be difficult. So you won't always enjoy it, but at those times, you know, you still need to knuckle down and focus on improving the stand-up, you know? When I'm not enjoying it and I'm thinking, oh, this is shit, whatever, the only way I can make myself feel better about it and start enjoying it again by going, okay, what's wrong with this show or what's wrong with how I'm performing at the moment and, you know, address that at the next gig. Um, so, yeah, always the answer is that you just focus on improving, and, uh, and,
0: and yeah, and that's it. Focus on improving, get better and stand-up. It sounds like you've got an amazing year ahead next year. Hopefully we'll be seeing a new book from you, if everything goes well, and obviously you've got the tour as well, which we might see hopefully on Netflix again, so I wish you all the luck with that.
1: Thanks, man, yeah. like uh, We'll see what happens with both of them, but either way, yeah enjoyable doing him in the meantime
0: so there it is me and the local boy himself james A. Caster, and what a great guy a really good interview that goes into a lot of his background and experience and it kind of i don't know when i was listening back while editing i thought it really motivated me and kind of wanted me to do better with my life and that's what i think is a great message when you're listening to these interviews and just to kind of keep working hard but a great great guest and I'm so grateful that I've got him on the show it took a while to happen and I'm glad it has and again I'd love to get you back on James and that's something I'll aim for hopefully later this year being a local boy it's not too far to travel either to get those interviews done James is touring and there's so many dates when I was looking at his poster the other day I was like when is this guy gonna stop and actually sleep if you haven't got tickets I recommend it it's one of the best live shows I've seen Get out there. There's even more dates towards the end of the year. There's like two separate tours. Just get on it because he's hilarious. Tickets aren't stupidly priced like some comedians out there. (coughs) Seinfeld. But seriously, check it out and go and see him live. He's playing all over the UK. There's so many different dates. Check out his book. It's on Amazon. Go and order it. Also... Seriously, get on Netflix, watch Repertoire. It's awesome. There's four episodes on there which go as part of his special. Four different stand-up shows that were taken place in a day. There's some of the best on there. Honestly, absolutely great stuff. Go on Twitter. Let him know what you think. You know, get on there. Tweet him. If you enjoyed the interview, let me know as well. That's what it's all about. We love reading these tweets and the Facebook comments and emails. Just go on markandme.com. On there there's a link to all of my social media, there's also my Patreon page which is building and building and thank you to everyone that supported me last year. It's helped me get new equipment, travel to conventions, travel to all these different places to do the actual interviews. I saw a comment the other day that made me laugh when someone asked, uh, I think it was on Facebook, how much do I pay the guests to get them on the podcast and that's hilarious because... If anyone knows me, I don't have much money and I'm not going to be able to pay guests. The whole idea of doing these interviews is with people that want to come on the show. That I work hard, maybe it takes 6 months to 12 months to get some of these guests. None of them, since the launch of this podcast, have ever been paid. I haven't got the money to buy decent food. (laughs) Never mind paying guests to come on the podcast. So, yeah, it's all about the love and doing it because we want to do it, not for the big paycheck. Thanks again to everyone that has tuned in, and I hope this is going to be a great year ahead. I've got some fantastic interviews already recorded, and they're going to be edited and released over the next few weeks. It'll probably be a couple of weeks now because I've got a new skip to the end out next week, and then we'll be back. And as always, you know by now, I don't tell you, you have to work it out for yourself. There will be clues online. I did it with James Acaster and people guessed after the first clue. So, maybe I need to make them a little bit tough. I don't know. But it's also fun when people get it straight away. But thanks everyone for listening to today's episode. As I said, go and check out James's work, buy stuff, do what you need to do, but check out his work. And I'll speak to you all again in a couple of weeks' time. Two, one, two, three, four.